my hope is just that, oh, by the way, we have youth tonight until forever. People keep asking me, it's youth 530 to 7 Sunday nights from now until the end of time when Jesus comes back and not during major nationally recognized holidays. So put that in your calendar. Um, I am thankful to get to share. I love um, sharing the scriptures. I love getting to get in the scripture. And probably you let me spend a week in one chapter. It's too long because I have too much stuff. Um, I know that I do, but. But hopefully uh, we could just faithfully walk through this passage together, maybe see it uh, with some new eyes um, or some fresh eyes uh, and hear what the Lord wants to say to us. And then after we do that, there's one thing in particular about this passage that stood out to me this week that I wanted to share with you. But let's let's jump in. I'm in uh, <clears throat> Matthew chapter two. Um and this is the visit of the wise men, and uh, how many of you guys are familiar with the story of the wise men? You've heard it, you've heard of the three wise men, right? You've heard of something like that. There you go, there you go. Caroline, come on. Good, I like to see the response. Um, but, uh, and, and so we're really familiar with it, we know it, there are bumper stickers about it, there are songs about it, there are flannel board things about it. You don't get a lot of flannel board genealogies like David shared about a couple of weeks ago, but this is a story that we've heard a lot. We hear about the three wise men or the three kings, and, and they bring the gifts to Jesus. And so it's hard sometimes with familiar passages to not just approach them with that sense of, I know this, I know this. You know what I'm talking about? And when I started to read this passage this week, I thought, man, it, it just feels like Christmas, right? Like, I can't do this. It feels like Christmas, and right now it's July, and how do we go through this passage? But as I allowed the Lord to open my eyes more to what's going on here, there's some things um, that he shared, and so I hope he uh, shares some things with your heart too. It starts out this way. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So here's what's going on. Uh, just to step out a little bit of the Christmas story. This really didn't happen at the manger. We get the manger scene in our head a lot of times, right? Because our manger scenes growing up, they had the three kings or the three wise men, right? Everybody had those. But that's not really when this happened. This happened probably around the same time uh, that David talked about last week when Jesus is around two years old. Mary and Joseph have settled in Bethlehem and something has started to happen in the skies. And we're not totally sure what it is. Some theologians think that it was an alignment of planets and certain planets, like I think Saturn represented kings and there was a planet that represented uh, Israel. And so these guys from way far off in the east, they've got no connection to the Israelites. They are, uh, they are Persian. They were called Magi, which it can be short for magicians, but really just means that they were advisors to the king. So they were advisors to the king in Persia. They're about 900 miles um, away from Jerusalem. And what they did with the kings in Persia were they studied the stars. They had kind of a astrology, astronomy hybrid thing going on. They, um, they read all of the books that they thought were books of wisdom. So that's how they knew about Israel. That's how they knew that there was supposed to be a king of the Jews. And, and so they took all of these things together and they advised the kings. So these guys, uh, there might have been three. There might have been as many as 12 of them. We don't know. Um, but these guys, they're looking up at the sky, and they see something. And it's either, it, it, it either is an astronomical event, or it is an angel, or it is a supernatural event where a star begins to move in a certain way, but they see something that is different. And their understanding of it is that the king of the Jews had come. And what Matthew's pointing out to his audience right now 
is this. The coming of Jesus isn't a localized event for one people in one place for one time. It is an astronomical event. Not only is it for all people, it's for everybody. It's for these Persians who are 900 miles away from Jerusalem, which is kind of Israel's, you know, home base. It's for these guys, but he's going to show Matthew throughout his gospel that Jesus is not, he's not just king of the Jews, but he's king of the world. And in fact, the stars demonstrate that he's king of the universe, right? We know this from Romans, and it says that even creation, you know, lets us know what the character of God is. And so what Matthew is establishing is that this is a huge event, for everyone and for everything, and that God is calling every people and everything in creation home, and it's starting with Jesus, okay? So that's what we're in. And these guys travel 900 miles to Jerusalem because they know Jerusalem is home base for for the Jews, and so they're going to find out where this king of the Jews is supposed to be. So they get there, and they say, we've come to worship him, and really that means we've come to pay him homage, like a king. He was a king. They worked for kings. They knew that if you had kings in other countries, a good thing to do was to go and acknowledge them. And clearly, if the stars were demonstrating that this king was coming, that he was a powerful king. So they get there, and it says, when Herod the king heard this, now Herod thought he was king of the Jews, right? So that's not going to sit well. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, For so it is written by the prophets, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him, that I too may come and pay homage to him. Okay, so here's what's going on in Jerusalem. All right, so we've got Herod, and if you don't know much about Herod, here's what you need to know. Herod's a bad dude, okay? You would have thought you wanted to be friends with Herod because he was powerful, and Herod would gather a lot of friends around him, and he would kind of entice people with his power. But really what Herod was doing was he was trying to assemble people that he could manipulate so he could keep power, and then he could kill if he needed to later on down the line. So you didn't want to be friends with Herod. You didn't want to be Herod's family member. There was an old saying that went around that said it was, be be- it was better to be Herod's pig than his family member because Herod had about 10 wives. I know that's going to surprise you that that caused problems for him. But he had about 10 wives. And with those 10 wives, he had numerous children. And just at different times, if he thought one of those kids was trying to take over his throne, he'd kill him. And, and so Herod was just a vicious guy. And he didn't start out vicious. But, but as he got power and as he longed to keep power, he became vicious, right? And we see that a lot of times, right? We have this phrase that says, power corrupts, right? And, and that's what happens with Herod. And in fact, Herod became so corrupt that ultimately he, he had something written out that he said where if, when he died, what they needed to do was kill a lot of the popular leaders that were in Jerusalem as well so that they could make sure that people would weep at his funeral. Because they might not weep for Herod, but they would weep for those guys, and so it would look like they were weeping for Herod. This is Herod. Herod, as he got powerful, became paranoid, and and so now he's freaked out about this king of the Jews who's been born somewhere in Bethlehem. And and so he doesn't want to worship him, but he's pulling these guys in because he's still smart, even though he's paranoid. And he lies to them, and, and he asks them, he says, well, when was he born? So he can figure out how old this king is. And so, you know, he finds out that Jesus is around two years old. And he says, well, go find him so I can worship him. But really, he wants them to find him to kill him. 
And, and the interesting thing here, the interesting verse here, I think, that stands out is this idea that all Jer- Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him was troubled too. Because when, when we hear Jerusalem in the New Testament, it is about the physical location, but it also represents all of the leaders of Israel. And, and Matthew's going to point out throughout his gospel that the leaders of Israel had at some point decided to align themselves with the power structures that were there more than with God. And, 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 they, and it causes them to run into problems. And this is the first indication of it for us, that not only is Herod troubled, but the, but the people that should be rejoicing that the king of the Jews has come are also troubled because they're suddenly threatened. And it's this interesting dichotomy between these people that were supposed to be so far away from God coming towards him and looking to worship him and these people that were supposed to be so near God, scared to death that they were going to lose their stuff because God had come on the scene. And it says, after listening to the king, they went on their way, the wise men. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. You think about this scene. I was thinking about this scene all this week. And uh, imagine this. How old's Jesus? Two. He's two years old. So uh, these men are, are some of their, we call them the wise men. It's not because they're stupid. They're wise, right? They've studied. They're smart. They're educated. Kings ask for their advice. They're wealthy, we find out, because to travel 900 miles, you needed to be wealthy. And that's why they have all their treasure with them, because they kind of had to pay their way to get there. And we find out they have gold and frankincense and myrrh and all this stuff. So these guys are rich. They're smart. Kings look to them for advice. They walk into a house, and they fall down and worship a two-year-old. Now, I've had two-year-olds in my house, and I've come home, and my wife has been on the floor. But it has not been, it has not been in an act of worship, right? It's been in an act of exhaustion. It's been in an act of frustration, right? Like, can you imagine what it would be like to have kings seek your advice and to worship a two-year-old and to give these gifts to a two-year-old? And one of the things that goes through my head is that these guys probably didn't even really understand what they were doing. They couldn't even really understand what was going on. The scriptures tell us that all of a sudden they were overjoyed. They get to where Jesus is and they're overjoyed. And it's, it's not a mental ascent. It's something that overcomes them within them. Something that circumvents that, that mental area. And the reason I, I, I pick at this is there are so many of us that if, if I can't figure it out in my head, Jesus, I'm not going to go there. If you can't make it make sense for me, I'm not going to give it to you in worship. Does that make sense? And... And it's, it's so interesting to me that if anybody should have said, no, 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 I need to figure it out before I do it, it should have been these guys. They're, they were the wisest men around. Yet instead, when they encounter Jesus, it's, it's a humbling experience, and they lay themselves down, and they lay their gifts down. And they didn't know what the gifts were going to be used for, right? I mean, these were honoring gifts. I wouldn't take them to the next baby shower you go to, but, but they're pretty good gifts in first century um, Jerusalem, or in first century Bethlehem, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and probably what happened is Joseph, when he was taking the family on all those family trips over the next year, probably used those to help fund them and take care of them. But in the long run, 
what they point to, Matthew is prophetically pointing to who Jesus is, right? Gold is the gift you give to a king, and Jesus is our king. You've heard this before probably. Frankincense is the type of incense that they used, and they burned it in the temple. And the priest, the only people that could burn it were the priests. And Jesus is our great high priest. Myrrh, it, it has two uses. One is for healing, and Jesus is our healer. And the other is for embalming, right? And it's for the dead, and Jesus is going to die for us. But they didn't know that. You know, we read that in, but they didn't know that. They didn't have any idea what they were doing. All they knew is that they had encountered the king, and the king deserved their worship. And so wherever that sits with you today, I just encourage you to look at it. The last thing is this, in verse 16. This is the end of their story. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men. Oh, they've been warned in a dream. I'm sorry. I don't know if I read that verse. But they were warned in a dream, and so they don't go to Herod, and they go a different route home. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is like the worst prophecy to connect to Jesus, is it not? Like all the other prophecies are like, he will set people free, he will do all these things, and then suddenly he fulfills this prophecy that children are going to be killed, right? And, and, it, and, it's, and it's connected to the rage and the fury of Herod, who can't, unlike the wise men who will humble themselves to worship the true king, cannot bring himself to do that, and so his fury is unleashed on children. But it is a prophecy fulfilled. And, and the interesting thing about it being included here is that it's from Jeremiah, um, and, and really quick, this is not a, what do you call it, professional digression, David? This is not one of those. I, I particularly feel like that, um, that there's maybe some people here that need to hear this. This is from Jeremiah. It's from, the, uh, it's from chapter 31 of the book of Jeremiah. And verse 15 is what we just read um, about the voice heard in Ramah and, and the children dying and Rachel won't be comforted. And then verse 16 and 17, listen to this. Right after, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. A lot of times in suffering, we, we can't see the promise of God's covenant. But, but this is a great reminder for us that even in the midst of suffering, what follows is God's redemption. Right? It's, it's the idea of the worst things are never the last things when it comes to Jesus. Yes, there are moments when we weep and there are moments when we hurt and there are moments when, when we're following Jesus and we don't understand why it seems to lead to more devastation rather than less. And it has nothing to do with our obedience at all. It has to do with, with, with what God is ultimately doing in this world to say that in this moment of suffering, we can remember that that is not the last thing. And that the part of my heart that cries out and weeps for suffering is actually the same part of my heart that knows that it's not the way things should be and it's not the way things are going to be. And we have that promise uh, in this passage from Jesus. So those are some of the things. I don't know where that sticks with you. Particularly that last passage, um, I feel like that it, it may be for, specifically for families or women um, that have lost children. Or, or that have experienced the loss, uh, believing that uh, you could never have children or you've been told that you could never have children. Um, and, and I don't know what to do with that except to tell you um, that God always has the final word on, on our healing in those moments and what he's going to do 
ultimately in those moments. And so maybe that's just hope for you today. Um, really, really quick, there's one thing uh, that stands out to me throughout this whole passage. And it's this idea um, that we started out in a place of reflecting God and peace. Right? Genesis 1, we're in the garden. Everything is good. We're connected to God. We're connected to each other. We're naked and we're unashamed. And then sin comes in. And the Old Testament is just the story of how sin comes in and breaks our norms. Right? Like our norm was worship of God and, and fellowship with each other and freedom from, freedom from shame. And sin comes in and it completely distorts our norm and it brings in killing and selfishness and fear and anxiety and power struggles and all of these terrible things. And then in Matthew, immediately what happens when Jesus comes on the scene is that all of a sudden creation starts breaking back towards Jesus. The norm of creation starts breaking back towards Jesus. Do you see this? And all of a sudden the planets even or, or the stars are supernaturally signifying and moving towards Jesus. And these people that have been far off and have, have never known or not part of that Old Testament story begin to move towards Jesus and become worshipers. And, and I think for us as a community, what God wants to say in that is this. The norm for our lives will happen as we move towards Jesus. The real norm for our lives will happen as we move towards Jesus. Why am I like this? Why am I like that? Why can't I stop this sin? Why can't I stop this thing within me? And you see Herod, and Herod probably had all kinds of issues, you guys. I'm sure he was like Psych 101's dream, right? I mean, this guy, he was crazy. But it all came about is this need within Herod to be safe, this need within Herod to be somebody, to have a legacy, to be important, and what it ends up doing is destroying his life, destroying his family, destroying other families as a result of the rage and the fury that Herod cannot tame within himself no matter how manipulative he gets, no matter how many people he tries to make friends with, no matter how many people he tries to get on his side, nothing will bring him peace. You have these wise men who come from the east and just by their willingness to move towards Jesus, their lives become something much more than they ever could have intended. Their worship becomes something much more than they ever could have intended. And, and I think too many times, um, we talked about this as a staff a couple of weeks ago, I think too many times it, it is too easy for us to think that the answer towards moving back toward, to God's norm is, is within our schemes and our grasp. You know what I mean? It, it's within my plans. If I just do X, Y, and Z, then I'll have the peace that I want. If I'll do X, Y, and Z, then I'll have the discipline that I want. If I just add these things to my life, and if I just try harder, and if I just make sure I'm okay with these people, or these people think I'm cool and funny, or, or, or I'm nice to these people, or I can get these people on my side, then my life is really going to be what God wanted it to be. And, and I just want to share one example uh, in my life as I close, and I don't know what the examples are for you, but this is the thing that kept coming into my heart as I was praying through this passage. Um, one, of, one of the norms that sin has created in, in my genetic family, in the men in my genetic family, is, is the norm of anger, of, of just burning anger. 
Um, and in some generations, it has expressed itself as physical abuse. In, in some generations, it's just expressed itself as verbal abuse, which is sometimes worse. Um, in, in some generations, it expresses as passive-aggressive or, or all those things. But it's just, it, it's just an anger um, that, that, is, that is ungodly and, and painful to the people that we love the most. And when I was growing up, I, I was determined um, that that was not going to be a part of my life and that that anger um, was not going to happen to me. And when I became a Christian and wanted to be a Christian husband and wanted to be a Christian father, it became that much more important to me to say, this is not going to be a part of my life. And I worked so hard to make sure that I was happy. And I worked hard to make sure that I was nice and polite. And I worked so hard to make sure that I was doing the things that a good dad does and the things that a good husband does. And a few years ago, just to be honest with you guys, a few years ago, suddenly, I, even with all that work, I could still feel that anger welling up within me. And I didn't know what to do with it, and I couldn't stop it. And it drove me nuts because most things, like, I, I can, there, there are not a lot of things that if I just push, push, push that I can't figure out. And, and this was one thing that I couldn't. And it would make me lash out at James, and it would make me lash out at our kids. And, and, and I didn't know what to do with it. And I even went to my dad, which is, I don't know why I did. But I went to him, and I said, here's what's going on. Can you help me? What do you do? And he looked at me, and he said, I don't know. And then he went back to watching a football game. So it didn't, <laughs> I like, I have a great dad, too, but that, that dog wasn't going to hunt. It just doesn't happen. So I didn't know what to do with it. But I couldn't seem to fix it. And the more I tried to fix it, the worse, I, the worse it got and the more condemned I got. And one of the things that God is showing me in my life, and I'm not there yet, is that what I need to do is just move towards him. And I may not even understand it sometimes. I may not be able to digest it and figure out how that's going to make me a better husband or a better father or whatever. And sometimes it challenges me to a huge degree because I'm like, no, what I'm angry about is really good. And I've got some really nice things to say. Let me say them. And instead, I hear that call from the Lord saying, that's not your norm. And your norm is over here. And if you will just move towards me and you will lay those things down, not even knowing why I'm asking for them. I promise you that, that, that I will make you into who you were made to be. And I know that, w- that one of our things here at Stonebridge is that we were made to be conformed in the image of Christ. And, and I think God's word for some of us today is that to do that, what we need to start doing is we, we need to stop working so hard to conform to that image and start just moving towards Jesus in worship. And that may be weird, and you may be like, I don't get this. That may mean opening your Bible and being like, I read that today, and nothing. It could have just been in Greek, and it would have been the same to me. But God, I trust you, and so I lay down my worship before you. It may be in worship, singing songs or raising your hands or doing whatever it is God's calling you to do, saying, I don't feel anything. But God, I trust that you're using my worship and moving towards you. And, and believing that as we do that, that God's norm, God's real norm, not the norm of this world, of Jesus in our, in our life, in our families, in our church, in our community, will be realized. And it will never be to our glory, and it won't be because Stonebridge came up with all the good rules about how to be the best church in the community. But people will look at us and they'll say, what did you do? And we can say, we moved towards Jesus. And we just kept moving towards Jesus no matter what. We didn't worry about our pedigree. We didn't worry about what town we were from. We didn't worry about how long we've been at the church. We just kept moving towards Jesus. And he used that in a way that we never could have imagined. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. We're going to take communion.
And communion is one of those things. I'm used to going over and getting communion. So I'm going to give it. Um, Communion is one of those things that is a move towards Jesus that I don't always understand, right? Like why is eating bread or, or, or drinking juice, like what does that do as an act of worship? But, you know, Jesus said, here's what it is. It's saying, I, I can't do this. I can't find salvation on my own. I, I need Jesus' body to be broken. I need his blood to be poured out, but, but not just for the world, but also for me. And when I take him in, I say, God, norm me towards Jesus. Move in and through me in a way that my plans never could and my schemes never could and my strength never could that I might be who I was made to be. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite um, the, com- the people who are going to be serving communion to go ahead and come up. And um, we'll also have people up here to pray for you, ministry time. And if one of those things stuck out to you, particularly um, I, I just feel a, a strong calling for that one about uh, just people that maybe have lost children and just need God to, to heal that and, and to do um, what the new covenant comes to do in that. There's also going to be gluten-free communion over here um, as well. And then we're going to get the ministry people to come forward to pray for you uh, for those things and to also pray for physical healing um, if there's anything uh, that you need physical healing for because your body, um, sin has normed it um, its way. Uh, but God wants to bring that healing in to norm it back to his glory in that way. So if the ministry people will come up and um, we'll worship and pray together. Let me pray for us. God. Lord, I I just thank you that you don't look for strong people. You don't look for close people. You don't look for for smart people or stupid people or emotional people or logical people. But God, you have said that all people as we move towards you can be moved back towards who you made us to be in the image of Jesus. God, we pray. Today, by your grace and glory, you would do so in Jesus' name. Amen.